have a Bible with you, open up to Genesis chapter 4. If you don't, there's one in the pew in front of you. Um, Doxa, we are uh, a little ways into a study of the book of Genesis here at Revelation Church, and um, you showed up for a weird one, so congratulations, I guess. Uh, as always, as we work through these texts, if you have questions about anything that we talk about or, or anything I skip, uh, feel free to anonymously text the number uh, and we'll go over those questions towards the end. So at this point in the story, Moses is doing two things. The first thing he's going to start doing is he's going to start following the blessing. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, the fall and how God told the serpent that he was going to raise up one of the offspring of the woman to crush the serpent. So there's this promise that's out there and Moses is going to be tracing the lineage of the promised line through the book of Genesis. And in doing that, he's going to have these other lines that shoot off. And what he's going to do is he's going to just tie up the loose ends with those other lines before he moves on to the chosen line. And so we're going to see that today. He's going to wrap up the line of Cain before moving back to the line of Adam and Seth. The other thing that he's doing in this passage is he's introducing us to something called the arts of civilization. This is an anthropological idea that is found in many, many ancient cultures. If you read old, old texts, different civilizations have ideas about how certain things came to be. Metallurgy, the arts, farming. And the main difference in the book of Genesis and what we're going to focus on this morning is that most ancient cultures believe that these things were gifts from the gods. If you're familiar with maybe Greek mythology and, and Pandora's box and fire and all of those things, the, the idea that all of these arts of civilization came from the gods is a big theme in ancient literature. But in the Bible, Moses says, no, 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 no. All of these things that we have are a result of human civilization. And that has some consequences. So right at the very end of this section, we see that Adam and Eve have another son. His name is Seth. And going into chapter five, we're going to talk more about Adam's line. But let's start this morning with some just interesting things. Verse 17 Cain was intimate with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And then Cain became the builder of a city, and he named the city Enoch after his son. Here's the classic question. Where did Cain's wife come from? We have Adam. We have Eve. We have Cain. We have Abel. There's no mention of any other people. So who does Cain marry? More than that, Cain last time said, God, you can't send me away from your presence because people will come and they will kill me. Well, who's he talking about? And then furthermore, he builds a city. Who lives in this city? Well, the Bible doesn't say. And I think it's important to recognize that it's not that important to Moses what the answer of that question is. Because see, sometimes you'll run into people who are critical of the Bible or critical of the faith, and they'll say like, look, right next to each other, there's these two passages and they're contradictory because the biblical authors were dumb and ha ha ha, God's not real. And it seems like this big like atheist gotcha moment. But that's just not true. This isn't a haphazard story. We've talked about in our survey of this book that this is a very deeply crafted work of literary art. And for Moses to make a mistake is just not likely. So if we have questions that the text doesn't have, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't wrestle with them, but just know that that doesn't mean that the book is foolish or automatically wrong for some reason. There's two basic ways to answer this question. The first one is just to go to chapter 5, verse 4, 
where we read that Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth and he fathered other sons and daughters. And so traditionally, the explanation has been there's a large period of time here and Adam and Eve are having children and their children are having children. And so there's a pretty good sized population that can answer these questions. Cain would have married his sister. There would have been some people in his family that were really upset that he killed Abel and might have sought to kill him. There would have been some people in his family that would have gone with him and his wife and they would have built the city together. That's one really good explanation. But there are other explanations. There are Christians who see the events of Genesis through a more modern scientific lens and they put weight on the scientific evidence that we see in the world. Uh, There's a field called population genetics that basically says that Um, with the amount of genetic diversity that the human race has, it would be very unlikely for us to have originated from a single pair. So you can say, well, I I just think that's wrong, which is is a a valid opinion. There are other scholars who try to work within those confines. William Lane Craig, who is a Christian philosopher, just came out with a book called The Quest for the Historical Adam. And in it, he argues that Adam and Eve should be placed on the historical timeline about 500,000 years ago. And in that scenario, there is no genetic problem for there being a single couple that spawned the human race. Another scholar, Josh Swamidas, wrote the book, The Genealogical Adam and Eve, and he shows through his genetic research that while Adam, if, if we assume that Adam and Eve were a special pair, but not the only pair of people in existence at that time, we can trace everyone on the planet's lineage back to Adam and Eve about 6,000 years ago. But that requires there being people outside the Garden of Eden. I'm not going to dig into that any further, but just know that if you're interested in that sort of thing, you can look into those authors for their thoughts. But the main idea this morning that I want to look at is this idea that sin, we've talked about sin, and in chapter three, there was sin and it entered into the world and it got worse with Cain and Abel. Sin infects culture. And the first thing we see is that sin just grows and grows. Look at verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, wives of Lamech. Pay attention to my words, for I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech, it will be 77 times. This is the first official piece of poetry in the Bible. Excellent in form. It is wicked in content. Lamech is bragging about how he gets in a fight with a younger man and he kills him. And he says, If my great 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 granddad Cain was protected by God for murdering someone, then I will be way much more protected, 77 times more protected for what I have done. And see, Moses' audience here, they know the Jewish law. They were just redeemed from Egypt. They've, they've heard the law of God. Exodus 21 says, if there's an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. This law is designed to put limits on how much sin can be committed. If, if you are harmed, the punishment for the one that harms you should fit the crime. But that's not what Lamech does. See, Lamech, he knows he's wrong. Someone injures him and he responds in force and kills the person. He knows he's wrong, but he promises 77 times the vengeance for the person that tries to oppose him. And we see in this poetic set of verses that Lamech is shown to be lustful, selfish, boastful, proud, violent, self-centered, and vengeful. And Lamech is the head of the family that pioneers human civilization. We're going to take a look at five areas of human culture this morning and see that they are all infected with sin. Look at verse 17 again. 
Cain was intimate with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And then Cain became a builder of a city and he named the city Enoch after his son. Erad was born to Enoch. Erad fathered Mahuyel. Mahuyel fathered Methushel. Methushel fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Ada and the other named Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of the nomadic herdsmen. His brother was named Jubal. He was the father of all who played the lyre and the flute. Zillah bore Tubal-Cain, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. And Tubal-Cain's sister was Naamah. So Moses is throwing a wrench in the, his culture's understanding of how civilization came to be. Civilization isn't a gift from the gods. It is an outworking of the image of God in humanity. God made us as creators. And even in sin, we create. But, Moses says, the cursed line of Cain is responsible for these cultural advancements. And that's not to say that these things are all necessarily bad, but that they are all infected with sin. This is a doctrine that we call total depravity. Charles Ryrie writes, total depravity does not mean that everyone is as thoroughly depraved in his actions as he could possibly be, nor that everyone will indulge in every form of sin, nor that a person cannot and appreciate and even do acts of goodness, but it does mean that the corruption of sin extends to all men and to all parts of all men so that there is nothing within the natural man that can give him merit in God's sight. There are good things that people do, but no one does anything that is unaffected by sin. For years in Flint, Michigan, there was a situation with lead in the water. I think there still is a situation with lead in the water. And you could be mowing your lawn on a Saturday and hot and go inside thirsty and open your tap and get a cool glass of water and drink that water and satiate your thirst and praise God for that. But some of that water is trying to kill you. The sin in our world is in the water. So the first thing that we see here is in verse 19. Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Ada and the other named Zillah. So this is the first instance of polygamy in Scripture. And this throws people because we want the Bible to be a rule book for us. And so when we see things that we think are weird, we want, we want Moses to go, and Lamech took two wives for himself, and that was bad. But Moses doesn't do that. But as we are students of Scripture, we can deduce that it is bad. Why? Because later on, well, earlier, there was direct teaching that a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they should become one flesh. There's only two people in that scenario. Later on, we see all kinds of instructions on marriage. There's a principle called the first mention principle where, where if you take a look at the first time something comes up in scripture, it's important. Well, who's the first polygamist? Lamech. And he's a, not a good guy. So maybe this is a reflection of his character. And then further on, as we could travel through Genesis, we're going to find example after example after example of the heroes of the story engaging in polygamy. And every single time, it goes badly for them. And so we can take those things and put them together and, and recognize that sin infects and perverts the institution of marriage. So what does that have to do with us today? Well, there's something called polyamory in the world, and it's growing. Polyamory is a relationship 
between more than two people. Sometimes it's three people. Sometimes it's five people. It's pretty uh, open-ended. Recent statistics says as many as 5% of Americans are currently in relationships involving consensual non-monogamy. That means we're not in a monogamous relationship and everybody's okay with it. I'm not cheating on you. I'm just visiting my girlfriend. A survey of church people recently found that 24% of church people think that these kind of relationships are acceptable. Now, this might seem surprising to you in a culture that is shaped by thousands of years of Christian teaching, that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that's kind of in the fabric of who we are as, as, as Westerners. But when Moses wrote this book, monogamy was the minority view. The idea that you would dedicate yourself to one person for life and, and, and forsaking all others well, that's a little weird. And so as we barrel on into the 21st century, Christian marriage is getting a little weird. So maybe you don't know anyone who's involved in a polyamorous relationship. I know people in this church do. I've talked to them about friends and family of theirs that, that are um, living this kind of lifestyle. But my guess is you will. This will be a topic of conversation in the coming years. And as the church, we should know what we believe about it. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Paul says that marriage is a picture of Jesus' relationship with his people. It's not the only picture, but it is a good one. And in marriage, the husband sets aside his former life and reorients it completely around his wife. In a polyamorous relationship, that picture of total devotion to the other is broken. The partner's loyalties are by necessity divided. And that's not the dedication that Jesus shows to his people. This will be an issue for us moving forward. And if we don't think well about it, there's a lot more we could say, we don't think well about it, we will be caught off guard when it becomes mainstream and we will react in unchrist-like ways because that's what we do when we're afraid and confused. And so we need to prepare ourselves as God's people to be marked with love and grace and gentle truth when we encounter it in our city. What's the second thing infected by sin in this passage? Well, the city itself. Verse 17, Cain was intimate with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain became the builder of a city. So Cain is described as building the first city. And in the ancient world, a primary reason to build a city is for protection. Today, cities are places where human civilization thrives. People move to cities to get things done better and faster and more efficiently. The International Organization for Migration in 2015 said around 3 million people are moving to cities every week. Approximately 54% of people worldwide now live in cities, up from 30% in 1950. People move for better jobs, better education, other opportunities, sports teams, nightlife, art museums, concert halls, high-paying jobs. And sin moves into the city right along with the people. Tim Keller writes, The city, while an accumulator of the energy of culture, is also an accumulator of the potencies of evil. The city draws and aggregates people's talents in such a way that the greatest works of culture are produced there. But it does the same thing with human sin. 
So the city is like a magnifying glass, bringing out both the best and the worst in human beings. And so that's why many of us said, well, that's why I left the city and I moved to the country. I have a lot of sheepish introductions uh, throughout town, especially in church where you meet somebody and you find out they just moved here and you say, hey, where'd you move from? And they go, California <laughs> or Portland. And, and I, I just, I have to assure them that it's okay. You're welcome here. This is a safe place. We want you to be here. Maybe that's some of you. Maybe you just moved in the last year or so from a big city out to Coeur d'Alene in the country. But see, if you've been here for a long time, then you complain about how this place is turning into a city. It's a fun conversation to watch two people, one who's a Coeur d'Alene native and one who's a transplant from LA talk about traffic. You ever had that conversation? 95 is so congested and this place is so terrible. And the person from LA is like, what are you talking about? We leave the city. We move to the country. Verse 20. Adabor Jabal, he was the father of the nomadic herdsmen. Jabal didn't just forsake the city, he forsook permanent residence. He's going to get out of there. He's going to take his people that are close to him, and he's leaving. He bought a tricked-out sprinter van. He has an IT job that he can do anywhere in the world, and he's going for it, right? Like, there is this rugged individualism that we love in this way of life. You have what you need, even if it's just your family or your close friends, and you don't rely on anyone else. Mark Sayers, in his book, The Road Trip That Changed the World, which is a fascinating study of the impact of Jack Kerouac on America, he writes, the symbol of the road represents a new understanding of self in which the individual attempts to break free from social relations, which lauds the value of personal freedom over everything else. This belief is seen everywhere today, especially in our low commitment culture where social commitments are now fluid and non-binding depending on the wants and desires of the individual. In the worldview of the home, appointments and commitments were to be kept for the sake of the collective. In the worldview of the road, the individual's sense of autonomy and freedom rules over social cohesion. As much as our culture loves the communal work of the city, it preaches the life of the individual on the road. Pick a popular movie. Almost certainly the hero is breaking free from their cultural commitments and expectations and setting a course for themselves. Luke Skywalker, five minutes in, I want to go to Tashi Station to get some power converters, right? That's his motive. He wants to get out of there, stay at home and help his aging family work their farm. No, adventure. Mulan. What's the, what's the point of Mulan? Mulan has societal, cultural expo expectations for her family, but she's going to lie and hide and join the army anyway, and she's the hero. Mr. Incredible, he can't keep a normal job to raise his family in quiet because he's a hero and he needs to make a difference. Right over and over and over again, our cultural heroes are the men and women that set out on their own. And so many of us buy into it. We get some land, we get a generator, we never leave our house. But sin goes with us out into the country, doesn't it? We, we fool ourselves into believing that we're connected to community. Social media does a really good job of that. And we lose track with what is meaningful. Mark Sayers has this, this chart in his book. He talks about different levels of interaction. And uh, that's the second one, I think. There you go. So historically, there's been a large individual, small group focus in culture. No, I'm sorry. You were right. That's backwards. <laughs> <laughs> the, the communal culture in, in societies for many, many years has been really significant. Your town, your village, your relationships, the interconnected web of people that you are a part of has been 
major to your formation. There was some individuality there and you knew a little bit about the world outside. But with the advent of the internet, it has changed significantly to this slide, thank you, where our communities are shrinking. We're becoming more individualistic, we're becoming more self-sufficient and kind of paradoxically, technology allows us to have a bigger understanding of the macro world around us while we don't know much about our communities. I really have a hard time getting local news, but I know exactly what's going on in Washington, D.C. Why is that? Because our understanding of community and individualism is com become muddled. We become more isolated from actual persons and we become more aware of people out there and we learn to hate and fear what we see out there. Leaving the city protects us from the wickedness outside of us, but fleeing to the country opens us up to the wickedness inside of us. What else gets created here? Look at verse 21. His brother was named Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and the flute. Musicians. Sin infects musicians. All of our musicians are at All of Life doing music today, so they're not going to hear this. <laughs> but music and art is infected by sin. The very first mentions of the art in Scripture is in connection with the cursed line of Cain. But on the other hand, look at Exodus 31. Look, I have appointed and named Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with God's spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every craft to design artistic works in gold and silver and bronze and to cut gemstones for mounting and to carve wood for work in every craft. The very first time we see the spirit of God enter into a person, it's this guy, Bezalel, the artist. Dorothy Sayers says the, the characteristic common to God and man is apparently the desire and the ability to make things. There's something fascinating about human beings. We make things. We look out into the future and imagine something that does not yet exist and we cause it to exist. Michelangelo wrote, the sculpture is already complete within the marble block before I start my work. It is already there. I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. A similar sentiment from another famous artist, Keith Richards. Songs are strange things, little notes like that. If they stick, they stick. With most of the songs I've ever written, quite honestly, I felt there's an enormous gap here waiting to be filled. This song should have been written hundreds of years ago. How did nobody pick up on that little space? Half the time you're looking for gaps that other people haven't done. This creative power that we have, on the one hand, gives us Bach's cello suite in G major, the Beatles' Yesterday, Stevie Wonder's Sir Duke. But it also gives us the power to create things like Cardi B's WAP, which if you don't know that song, don't look it up. It's horrifying. I looked for older bad songs and I couldn't find them because we just forget them, don't we? All the songs from the 60s and the 70s are great because we forgot all the terrible ones. Bad music fades from memory. The arts are dangerous. They can do profound good in the world, but they can also do profound harm. The arts, especially music, have a way of connecting with and even manipulating our emotions. Philip Ryken says, art has tremendous power to shape culture and touch the human heart. Its artifacts embody the ideas and desires of the coming generation. This means that what is happening in the arts today is prophetic of what will happen in our culture tomorrow. It's important. What's happening in the arts today is prophetic of what will happen in our culture tomorrow. That also means when the church focuses on making art that is a copy of what's being done already, 
our art will always fail to communicate prophetically. Psalm 33 says, Sing a new song to him, play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. Riken notes that there is a command to vocalists, composers, instrumentalists, and the gathered people there to sing and to be part of the music-making community. Makoto Fujimura says, All art, music, and poetry by intention or not invokes the new Even a non-Christian creating must have some sense of hope or it will not be possible to create into a future audience that will have a future encounter with that work of art. Biblical new creation reality is working to empower, to restore, and to create into the new. The arts are a powerful tool for communicating and creating culture, but they're infected with sin and we need to learn to use them wisely. This is one of my personal hopes for Revelation Church is that we would grow to be able to become a patron of the arts. I would love to be in a situation where we can sponsor art throughout our community and direct the artistic culture in Coeur d'Alene from the perspective of the gospel. What if you're not an artsy person? What if you're just a hardworking, get stuff done sort of person? Look at verse 22. Zillah bore Tubal Cain, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. Tubal Cain's a metal worker, he makes tools. Metallurgy fuels the economy of the ancient world. If you are into farming or travel or hunting or war, all of these things are given more power by the craft of the metal worker. And all of this is infected with sin. The modern economy that we live in is powered by metal and circuits and machines and electromagnetic pulses. We have increased Tubal Cain's work by orders of magnitude in our world. The capitalistic, economically free system that we have is often tied together with the idea of democracy and choice. And and we live in a cultural moment where everyone seems to hate democracy and capitalism. One of my favorite quotes about democracy is from Winston Churchill. He said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those others that have been tried. And it's this recognition that we are infected with sin. 200 years ago, 60 million people in the world were not living in extreme poverty. Today, over six and a half billion people are not living in extreme poverty. Between 1990 and 2015, 138,000 people per day were lifted out of poverty due to their access to the free market. See, leaning into industry and technology and figuring out new tools and new ways to get things done has been a huge win for humanity. At the same time, all of it is infected with sin. Joanna was telling me about a Facebook discussion that she was um, looking over the other day uh, among some women who are, had a group that were um, focused on buying ethical clothing. You know, clothing that is not made in a sweatshop, that doesn't use child labor, that, that, is, that its material is farmed in an ethical way. And, and these were Christian women who were excited about doing the right thing in their clothing choices. But then they found out that many of the organizations that they were buying from were adamantly opposed to the new pro-life bill in Texas, which as a Christian who believes in the sanctity of life and wants to see the abortion industry destroyed in America, they didn't know what to do. They want to they make ethical choices here, but, but now this choice that they have to make is in conflict with this other value that they hold. And I think it's worthwhile for us to try to follow Jesus as best we can as we navigate the economy, as we navigate industry. But I've not found a good way to disentangle myself from it because sin infects 
everything that we do. We can't escape it. Sin is in the water. But as Christians, we we need to oppose it. We're called to stand up for the gospel, for the way of Jesus. So how do we oppose sin? If you've noticed, as we've studied Genesis, at some point in our study, we always get to Jesus. It's because Jesus told us to, he says in Luke 24. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus says, everywhere you turn in the Old Testament, you will find me there. So where do we find Jesus in this weird poem about a polygamist? In Matthew 18, the disciples are talking about forgiveness. And we read that Peter approached Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Now, there's a note in my Bible, maybe in yours at the bottom, that says that that could be read 77 times. And it's kind of a funny thing. It's a Greek phrase. It literally means 70 times seven or 490, but it's an idiom. An idiom is just a saying that has a different meaning than its face value saying. And the idiom is that it means 77. And the only thing I could think of in our context is when we talk about a baker's dozen, like if you didn't know what that meant, you'd be like, well, a baker is a baker and a dozen is 12, so it's probably 12. But if you know what a baker's dozen is, you know that a baker's dozen is 13. And it's the same kind of thing. This phrase that's used that literally means 490 was used as an idiom for 77. Why is that important? Because Jesus read the Bible called the Septuagint. It was written in Greek. It wasn't in Hebrew. And if you read the Greek Bible of Genesis chapter 4, Lamech 77 is the same phrase as Jesus, 70 times 7. So what does that mean? As a student of Scripture, Peter would have immediately recognized that Jesus was referring back to Genesis 4. You need to forgive your brother 77 times. And Peter would have go, oh, you're talking about the Lamech story. The whole story would have flooded his mind and he would have begun to understand Jesus' way of radically opposing sin. Not by playing the same games that sin has taught our culture, lust, selfishness, exploitation, perversion, but with radical, unending love, forgiveness, and mercy. And so as we grapple with culture, both in here and out there, when we look out in the world and we see something that makes our blood boil, what does it look like to reject the values of Lamech's family and adopt the values of Jesus? See, that's how the power of the gospel, the power of the new creation We'll make changes in the world by adopting the way of Jesus, not the way of Lamech. Our church tradition, the evangelical church, has a habit, going back to the beginning of the 20th century, of needing enemies to thrive. Communism, feminism, the liberals, Hollywood, Disney, the public school system, Black Lives Matter, critical race theory. We go on and on and on and on with the things that we are angry about. And it doesn't mean that those things aren't infected with sin because they are just like everything else. The problem is, are we people that are empowered by the things we are against rather than the things that we are for? Recently, I read an article with an up-and-coming political candidate who says in the article, I think our people hate the right people. That sentiment is absolutely the way of Lamech, not the way of Jesus. So as we engage with and make culture, because we are all culture makers, whether you're a musician or a metal worker or 
someone who lives in the country or the city or any number of things. As you make culture in your home, your work, your life, give thought to how you're not just doing a good job making that culture, but you're also pursuing the radical way of Jesus in those things. As we walk this life, sin is always going to be a part of our culture. And you will always be pulled toward the selfish, the lustful, the violence of Lamech. But we are called to oppose that by the power of Christ that lives within us. And that's going to look very, very different. So, we're going to take some questions. Okay. What does this first one say? How did Moses know that the promised line was through Seth? I know we find out later in Scripture that the Messiah comes to the line of David, but David wasn't born until after Moses died. So yeah, from Moses' perspective, he's seeing back all the way to his current day uh, where he is a member of the chosen people of Israel, God's, God's special family that he decides to work with. He rejects every other nation in the world so that he can create this covenant people and woo the rest of the world back to him. That's the plan. And so as while Moses might not know exactly what's going to happen with Jesus and David, he knows the trajectory of the blessing. And well, we can trace that trajectory through Abraham's family, through the rest of Genesis, and into the Israelite people in Exodus. That's a good question. Given that these people probably have more children than are listed here, how significant is it that Naamah is mentioned along with the line of men? That's such a good question. Yeah, so Naamah, they don't say anything about Naamah other than she was born, right? Um, I don't know. Most of the work that I did this week mentioned this in kind of in passing, mostly because they wanted both women to have two kids. That's the guess, is that that there's a symmetry in Ada having two kids and Zilla having two kids. And so that, that's the only answer that I came up with for that. But um, it's an interesting question. Do you think Lamech would have spoken with Cain after killing the young man as someone who understands murder? I don't know. I, I think possible. I, I think we, we read some of these genealogies and, and just kind of see this person and then this person and then this person. Um, if you, this is how geeky I am. And when I was in junior high, I made a spreadsheet of all of their lifespans and overlapped them on top of each other. And most of them are all alive at the same time. Like Adam lives a long time and gets to know a lot of his descendants. So it's possible that Cain and Lamech knew each other. If there is total depravity in people and culture, how do we reconcile that with God saying his creation is very good and a people made in his image, which is good since the fall? Is everything bad and sinful or, and not good at all? Or how much good and how much bad is there in people and the things we create? Yeah, that's a great question. So total depravity doesn't mean that everything is as bad as it possibly could be, but it does mean that sin infects every possible aspect of human life. So I would argue that there is a tremendous amount of good in the world, that we are all made in the image of God still, even though we are marred by sin, even though our um, souls are crooked and broken, even though we participate in wickedness, the primary thing that we are is image bearers of God. So I, I would say our, the total depravity helps inform the fact that there's nothing in us that is good enough. 
we are not able on our own, by our own devices, to enter into the presence of God, to restore the relationship that we lost with him in Adam and Eve. We need Jesus for that. But I would also say that there's all kinds of things in the world that Christians and non-Christians do that are good and beautiful. And they all come from the fact that we're all made in his image. Let's see. I think we have one more. As Christian artists, how do we balance the needed tension between the dark and light without going too dark? For instance, in the book, the antagonist needs to be portrayed well as evil or wicked in order for the protagonist to be seen as truly good and needing to be victorious. How do we not get lost in the dark when creating that? That's a good question. I think a really wise understanding of calling is important there. If you are called to be an artist and make a certain kind of art, I would, I would really spend significant time with the Lord and uh, godly mentors in the church, like teasing that out. Because I think you're right. I think um, one of the... Uh, one of the telltale signs of bad Christian art is the villain is just not that bad. Because, you know, we can't have any swearing in our, in our Christian movie. So, like, he just doesn't have any, any, any depth of wickedness to him. And I think one of the most powerful things about good Christian art is a careful study of wickedness. Seeing someone who has been, has given themselves over to sin and depravity is a healthy reminder sometimes for the rest of us. But if it, you're called to create that art, I think you need to be careful. I think you need to do that in community. I think you need to have people in your life that are holding on to you and helping you work through those things. And I also think you need to have boundaries. There are some things that, that Paul says, we shouldn't even have anything to do with that. And that might, those boundaries might be different for different artists but I think they need to be thoughtfully created in your life if you are the artist and to work within the bounds that God in his wisdom has given to you as an individual creator. All right. We're going to uh, take communion. There are... The gospel is on display every week when we take communion. As we take the body of Jesus uh, as represented through the bread and, the, and the, his blood as represented through the cup into our lives, we are renewing our commitment, our covenant with him. And there are many aspects of the gospel to ponder. It's like a, it's like a diamond with many facets. And as we take communion this week, I want to focus on one aspect that maybe doesn't come to mind for you that often. If you are a Christian here this morning, you have been asked to partner with God to remake the world into a place where humanity can dwell with him. We read it in Genesis 1. Humans give, are given this mandate to make culture. That mandate has not gone away. In Christ, you have been adopted as a son or a daughter of Yahweh by the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. Your sins have been washed away. But in addition, you've been given a job to do. A job that forever, whatever reason, God is not going to do by himself. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus' command to go and make disciples is something that he could have completely accomplished on his own. And yet he doesn't want to. He insists that we go out into the world and litter it with the love of Christ. And if you're in this room this morning and you're not a Christian, you haven't bowed your knee to Jesus, you haven't said that I repent from my sin and follow you, Jesus is waiting for you. He wants you in his family he wants to make you whole and equip you to build this new world with him. But you have to recognize that you are drinking polluted water 
and that you are broken beyond your own repair. But Jesus makes things just like we do, and he can make you new this morning if you trust him. What are the pieces of culture that you have been called to make, to engage with? How has Jesus set you free from sin and death to make those things? What are the things that prop up in your life that stop you from doing those things? We're going we're gonna to sing some more. Feel free to come up and take uh, the bread, take the cup, back to your seat, ponder that. Think about those things. Ask the Lord to show you areas of your life where maybe you're, you're responding to culture like Lamech when you should be responding like Jesus. Maybe you have a, a job to do. Maybe you've been called to enter into culture for good and you're holding back. Jesus' broken body and blood shed for you on the cross makes you a new creation and gives you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability to walk into the world as his witness. As we close, I want to read another quote from Makoto Fujimura. He's talking about the communion meal. The Eucharist relies on us to be culture makers. Bread and wine are both realities that would not exist on their own. But earthly materials must be cultivated by human beings and require much time to create. In other words, just by wheat or grapes growing naturally, neither of these elements for the Eucharist will be created. Human beings, through their toil, and over a period of time experimenting to perfect the craft, have made bread and wine. God, for some mysterious reason, waits upon human making and chose to use our ability to make bread and wine to reveal Jesus' resurrected presence, known at the table of the Eucharist. Imagine that. The resurrected Christ waits until we create, until the soil we cultivate is harvested, and until we make to reveal himself to us. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.